0: So today, I want to start a series of sermons that is going to go through July. So July 27th will be the last one in this series. Um, July 27th, if, if all goes as planned, I've got everything queued up. Uh, we'll actually have uh, some folks from the Playhouse that will be here that will help, uh, and I won't give you a whole lot of details, but we'll play an integral part in the sermon and what I the the principal idea that I hope to, uh, to share that day, so something kind of to look forward to. But in terms of themes, uh, this theme through July is going to be about worship. Uh, it's also going to be about the Psalms, and so we're going to rely heavily on the Psalms through this period of time. Not every Sunday, uh, we'll, next week in fact comes from Chronicles, but still relying heavily on the Psalms and exploring the idea of worship. Um, I want to begin today talking about how much we are influenced by things in our past, uh, most notably, <coughs> Greek philosophy which is part of our past, not our immediate past, certainly, but historically, our philosophical past, it's definitely part of it. And another thing that I want to stress, and I I want you to get throughout this series, is the fact that I cannot have the relationship with God that I want to have without worship. And Psalms centers me on that. Psalms really helps me to achieve that. So we'll talk about all those ideas. Um, Worship is sort of like GPS for me and you. It, It gives me direction. It helps me remember my place in the universe. It helps me understand my relationship with my Creator. It's my rudder. It's it's my my sail that uh, that gives force and momentum to my life. It's it's so many things, and yet there are so many human beings that uh, want to have a relationship with God without the discipline of worship, and you really can't have it. It it doesn't work that way. Believe it or not. Um, I was talking today, you know, of course, about the social nature of the Lord's Supper. It really is a social event. But I hear so often about people saying, you know, I can go out in the woods and worship, but you can't hug a tree. tree doesn't hug back. You know, a tree doesn't look you in the eye. Uh, there's so many things that, that can't happen when I'm by myself or you're by yourself. Well, back to the whole idea of, of influencers. Part of our problem, I think, when we, we come to issues like this, or uh, is, rather is, the problem of what has influenced us, what has caused us to believe what we believe. Everything that we do comes from some sort of philosophical assumption. everything we do. So have you ever said, I just don't understand why they do that. I don't understand why they don't get that. I don't understand why they think that. We've all said it. But if you explore what the assumptions are, then you start to go, oh, I get it now. I see what got them to this point. One of my, my favorite questions, if I'm having a conversation with somebody that I don't understand I'll ask them, will you take me on that trip with you? you know, will you, will you tell, and I'm sincere, but you know, will you take me on your trip? Will you tell me how you got from here to here? I, I'd like to see that. And so that's what I want to ask, you know, how do we get from here to here? Why do we believe what we believe about God? Why do we believe what we believe about worship? Kurt Cobain is one of the best examples I can give you of somebody who's influenced by their assumptions. Kurt Cobain, the Seattle rocker, uh, Nirvana was his group, was a nihilist. And as a nihilist, N-I-H-I-L-I-S-T, he believed that <coughs> life is without objective meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. Now, Janelle gave the the right expression. It's kind of like, what? Because how would you like to live that way? Life is without objective meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. That'd be a pretty bleak way to live, but that's what Kurt, Kurt Cobain believed. Now, what happened to Kurt Cobain? Do you understand now why he did? Yeah. Because if that's what you believe, this is not very far away, right? Life has no intrinsic value, objective, or intrinsic uh, intrinsic value or meaning. And a few years ago, I was doing some reading on uh, the openness of God and because I was exploring the whole idea of human free will. And I, I, I've always believed that human beings had free will, but I, I just wanted to wrap my head around it and kind of think about what that meant. And uh, the writers in this book, it was, there were five editors to this book, uh... talked about the influence of Greek philosophy on our beliefs about God and they tracked these beliefs about God to specific philosophers and how these philosophers not Bible but these philosophers had influenced the people that came after them. Well recently uh, in reading N.T. Wright on the subject of the Psalms, N.T. Wright starts talking about the philosophers. He talks principally about two, Plato, 427 to 347 B.C., and a century later, Epicurus, 341 to 270 B.C. You've heard of Epicurean philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, is attributed to Epicurus. Uh, Plato, you've certainly heard about. And Wright talks about how these two philosophers have affected, and I, I believe he's dead right, because you can see the threads of it in what people say and what they do, even today. Plato, briefly, believed that spirit is good, but matter is evil. Spirit is good, but matter is evil. Therefore, evil. 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 Why? Because they're all matter, they're all stuff. The universe, evil. Because it's stuff, it's matter. Um, Gnosticism, which came along later, Gnosticism was a philosophy in the first, second, really kind of came on strong in the second century, but Gnosticism started to rear its head in the early church, and Gnostics had this same view. In fact, the Gnostics said the earth could not have been created by God, it had to be created by an emanation, by something far removed from God, because God is good and the earth is bad. Evil. So God couldn't have created it. There was a, a sect of Gnostics called the Docetists. Docetists comes from a Greek word which means to seem, S-E-E-M. And so they said, it only seems that Jesus was incarnated in human flesh. But we all know that matter is evil, therefore Jesus could not possibly have inhabited human sinful, evil flesh. And therefore, what we saw on the cross was not really Jesus. It was something else. Crazy, isn't it? But you can trace it all the way back to Plato. Um, the world is a shabby place. It's, it's full of lies, and the best thing that we can do is leave it and our material bodies that's platonism that's casting aspersions on what god has created and that god what did god call the universe when he created it do you remember he said it's good it's good epicurus believed that there were gods and that these gods had some some part to play in the creation of the universe but The gods, or the God, was disinterested, and so God created the universe, hurled it out into space, and walked away from it. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, which is a version of Epicureanism. Thomas Jefferson believed in God or a god, but didn't believe that God was really involved. Well, it's not difficult to see where these philosophies take us. Uh, For example, if the world is an evil place, it really doesn't matter what I do to it. I'll just drive a Hummer. It doesn't matter. Pollute the air. Gorge myself on oil. It doesn't matter because it's it's evil. Um, Or if I'm Epicurean and I believe that God is disinterested in this, what does that do to my prayer theology? Well, why why do I pray? God's disinterested. God's not listening to me. God's not a part of what what, what concerns me. See where that goes? And so if you're talking to a friend... And they're saying things like, you know, I don't really think prayer, you know, I don't understand prayer, I don't really believe it, I don't think God listens to me. It's probably coming out of an Epicurean sort of thread of thought that has persisted since Epicurus was alive. So I want, and I'll come back to this at the end of the sermon, but I'd really like to challenge you to think about what you believe and where it comes from. Now, you're not going to know all the answers to that, but it's something to think about. Uh, I grew up in a very conservative (coughs) church that honestly believed that what we believed had passed from us unfiltered and unaffected from the first century to the middle 1900s. Sounds like a long time ago to me now. (laughs) Mid-1900s. Well, they were well-meaning. We're really trying to be people of the Bible. But in point of fact, those things that we believed had been filtered through all of these lenses, all of these people that had read the Bible and added their own interpretations. And so understanding what God is saying in the Bible is a continuing, ongoing, disciplined process if I really want to know what God gave to me. There's an old Anglican prayer book <coughs> that uh, prescribed the praying of Psalm 95 daily. I think that's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you want to turn there or not, but Psalms 95. Uh, says this oh come let us sing to the Lord like a, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation we sing a song like that Come, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise what a great song and this prayer book this Anglican prayer book says we ought to sing that song every day Well, I think that's kind of a neat idea because what happens is when I make something like that the center of my discipline, of my daily life, it starts to reorient me. I may have been affected by Epicureanism or Platonism or something like that, but Psalms brings me back to where I ought to be in terms of my relationship with God. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Clearly, there's a a value placed on reminding worshipers that God is, present tense, involved in creation. He is the rock of my salvation. Uh, Contrary to Epicurus, we're in his hands. God cares about what happens to his universe. Uh, God loves us. If you go back to... uh, The psalm that Jared read to us this morning, uh, Psalms chapter 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the firmament proclaims, present tense, his handiwork. Day to day, the universe pours out speech. So that's a really different view, isn't it, than, than what we've been talking about. So we, uh, we belong to a universe that worships. Uh, and contrary to Plato, it's not an evil universe. It's a worshiping universe that knows its creator. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, throughout the Psalms, you see over and over again that God remains connected to the creation. The Lord answer you in your day of trouble, Psalm 20. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, Psalms 24. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Psalms 46. So worshiping in Psalms is a a very, very important discipline. Uh, I think it's really a lot like baseball or football. Because you you know what wins, baseball and football, is not the razzle-dazzle plays. It's not. It's running and batting and catching the ball. That's what it is. Simple things. You know, it's it's not triple plays, although those can help. It's not even necessarily home runs. It's just a well-hit ball. It's beating the pitch to first base. You know, it's simple stuff. And worship falls in that category. Um, worship takes my eyes off me. Uh, I'm, I'm so self-centered. And I know you are too. We all are. It's part of our nature. Epicurus says... Our chief aim in life is to create happiness for ourselves, very self-centered. And I would argue that our chief aim in life is to worship God. And I think that's the claim of Psalms. I have a friend in Sacramento, John Ortiz. He's, John and Devon have worshipped here with us before. And uh, John used to, uh, when I was in Lodi, he used to critique my bulletin articles. And we were trying to do something creative with, with bulletin articles. And, and it worked. And uh, the object was to create these, these very backdoor things with, with no specific point. And, and to leave it up to the reader to kind of go, oh, never thought about that before. And there were some people that go, what on earth is Logue writing about this week? And that, that was okay, too. But in one of my articles, John just bled all over. He did that, generally speaking. But he said, his instruction to me for this particular article, I think this was after we've moved to Merced, was strip out all of the personal pronouns out of your article. Strip them all out. I'm here to tell you that that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It is hard to talk without self-referring. Very hard. Have you ever gone out to eat with somebody and an hour later all you talked about was them? That's frustrating. I want to talk about me too. But how many times... Do we participate in conversations where it's either all me or all them and we don't learn to to attribute and, and to be involved in, in others? Well, the God stuff strips that out of me. It trains me to think about someone other than me. I think that's really, really important in a in a hedonistic, really selfish world that we live in. Well, I want to finish by telling you what I think this means. Uh, First of all, I think that it means that I need to pay close attention to what I'm listening to. I have to pay really close attention. Because what goes in your head affects what comes out of your life. What goes in here affects what comes out here. And so I need to be attending to the spiritual disciplines. I need to be praying and I need to be reading Scripture and I need to be thinking about what God wants me to think about. It's not hard work It's just ongoing work. You know, and maybe it's every day over the breakfast table I begin by reading a small section out of the Psalms. Maybe that's what I do. But it's like investing. uh, You know, with with, uh, compound interest, if you invest just a little bit over a lifetime, it becomes a huge amount of money. If you start early, $25 $25 a month, you become a millionaire by the time you're retiring. And that's, that's the net effect of making time for that in my life. Number two, God loves what he created and he cares about what happens to it. It's another message in the Psalms. So when I am a poor steward, I'm really reflecting on God. Psalms 104 says, God, you make the clouds your chariot. You make the winds your messengers. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. I was reading, uh, uh, I was actually looking at some Christian apologetics you know, in preparation for a, for a sermon. And the earth has like a, 23-degree tilt, I think that's the right number. Is that right? And if it's not 23 degrees, you know what happens? We start flying off the planet, and it starts baking, and, you know, all sorts of really negative, awful stuff if it doesn't tilt at 23 degrees. God. God at work in this. God. water freezes from from the let's see from the top down what if the water molecule was different and it froze from the bottom up what well, wouldn't support life during the winter things about oxygen and nitrogen and the amount of uh, the percentage of, of the gases in and what we breathe affects our ability to live god it works Third, the the Psalms anchor me in the present. Uh, Rather than disavowing the creation like uh, Plato would, Psalms is a way of saying that our times matter. Our times matter. The earth matters. Um, I'm filled with reverence because of this, for what God has done and I look for ways to engage this world that I live in with my life. How do I, as a, a steward of what God has given me, interact with this world and treat this world in a way that honors God and, and makes God proud? Even the raging that often occurs in the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you'll find the there's all kinds of people just doing this at God. Why, why haven't you answered me? Why are you letting my enemies beat up on me like this? I mean, there's just they're all over the place. There used to be a Broadway play called Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. And it was about Job. I love that. But the neat thing is that God allows us to attempt to box with him. He does. He says, bring it on. I'll take you on. All comers. And Psalms are really that sort of thing, often. But it's God's way of saying, you matter to me. You're important. My question for you today is this How do you think you've been influenced? What influences are there in your life that may get in the way of your relationship with God? I think that's an interesting question. And I, know, I have some of those things in my life. I know that. What are they for you? And are you doing anything about them? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about what God would want you to do with that? how God would want you to change that. And then maybe an attendant question, and then we'll pray. How can the Psalms and worship help you to be more God-centered in the way that you are? Let's pray. Dear God, (coughs) there's so much that is confusing and disorienting in this world. We confess that we are a mess of conflicting beliefs and philosophies and often taken away from where you want us to live. Please give us clarity. Help us to see the ways that we allow other gods into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.